Hello, this is Ellie Levy, and welcome to The Bend, the podcast about our choices and what compels us to make them. This episode is with director Lizzie Borden, who made Borden Flames and Working Girls, two vital films from the 80s. The festival I co-direct, Final Girls Berlin Film Festival, showed Born in Flames when we did our Women in Sci-Fi event back in 2019. I approached Lizzie Borden during the pandemic because I figured people had more free time now to do this kind of thing, and it worked. It was an honor to have a chance to talk with her about her craft. We talked about her films, of course, as well as what it was like to work with Harvey Weinstein, the Me Too movement, and quite a lot more. If you're listening, Lizzie, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's a conversation I will always remember. I could go on and on about how wonderful and influential she is, but I think it's best to just start the episode. Here I am with director, editor, and writer, Lizzie Borden. Hello, hello, hi. Uh, can you hear me? Can you, yeah, I can hear you. All right, so good morning. First of all, thank hi. you again for uh, doing this. I'm really excited about it. I kind of just want to get a little bit of a timeline idea of, of your, your life. So um, my first question would be um, quite a basic one, which is where did you grow up? I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my parents came from New York, and that's where I always wanted to go back to because they were Jews from Brooklyn, and my father got a job teaching at Wayne State in Detroit. So that's where I grew up, but I never identified with the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to get out of there as soon as possible, so that's what I did. Did you take trips as a kid to New York? Like, did you have an idea of what what it's actually like? Yes, because they had all their relatives were right. in New York. Right, sure, that makes sense. And although I didn't really identify with their relatives either, because <laughs> one, one branch was a, 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 they were a very extreme religious Jews, and I didn't, I didn't really identify with them because I didn't see why the women had to be separated from the men. Uh, so yes, we went to New York often, but we also went to Manhattan, which I loved. Mm-hmm. That was that was really fun, and I I loved that. So it was it was just it felt like being in Michigan was just a temporary place to be. Hmm. I see. Yeah. And would you say, I mean, it sounds like you were quite critical of as a kid from what you just said about your extended family, but would you say that you got politicized or more aware, like after moving to New York, or was this something, were you also rebelling against certain structures as a kid as well, growing up in uh, Detroit? Yes, absolutely. You know, I remember rebelling against my family and going downtown when I wasn't supposed to go downtown and just, it just felt like I was rebelling against the structure of uh, the family, you know, the idea that a person was supposed to be a certain way within a family. I remember a woman who influenced me the, the most was an artist. There was a woman I knew, I don't think she was my teacher, but she was someone who had a long black braid down her back and she made, she was a sculptor of some sort. And I remember being incredibly influenced by her. So mm-hmm. all I really knew, all I really knew as a, young girl was I wanted to be an artist. I went to Wellesley, which I didn't like. I wanted to go to NYU, but again, my parents thought that they didn't want me to go to a city. I think they knew I wanted to be in a city and they were afraid about my going Mm. to being in such a large city. They're from New York, so maybe they knew that it was just too much. But I I didn't like being at Wellesley with 
beach felt too, it was all Muffies and Buffies and it felt very <laughs> insular. So mm-hmm. I was hitchhiking, I was hitchhiking to New York every chance I could get. And it, it was a, at a time where hitchhiking wasn't, it didn't feel as dangerous. You know, I usually was doing it with friend or something. And that's when I discovered the village. Everything was kind of crazy then. It was very, um, it was it was just a lot of stuff going on. It was mm-hmm. you go down and just you just see all this again. It was going to where activity was. So I don't even tell people I went to Wellesley. It's, I'm not proud of it. You know, I, I studied art history, but there, there was no art program like fine arts program. You know, and I, I remember going, people going to art museums and just being so reverent to the art, but I wanted to get in it and mess with it and play with it, not just look at it and analyze it. Mm. Although that was something I could do. I was good at that. And um, I became an art critic very early, even while I was there, because I had met an, uh, Robert Pincus Witten, who was a, he was, an, he was an art critic. And so I became a writer for the, for Art Forum early on. So mm-hmm. I, was able, I was able to meet a lot of artists and knew a lot of artists, but I was art, an art critic, which seemed to be very, contradictory to being an actual artist because you became very critical of your own work right and I realized I realized kind of early on that I I wasn't I didn't think I was very good you know and even though I was trying to paint for years and then at a certain point I just I knew I wasn't I knew I wasn't mm. very good mm. so at some point one thing Painting then turned to filmmaking, but yeah. it all emerged from yeah, it emerged from the art world. That's what I wanted to ask. Um, what what attracted you to, to filmmaking, and and like how did you decide to make that jump? It sounds like um, it was kind of in a way organic, but um... it was organic because a lot of the a lot of the artists who I was working with very closely also made films. Mm. Money job I had, which was doing a a catalog of of video for uh, Castelli Sonnabend, which was just writing something about every single video piece of video art. So, but it was, it, it wasn't so much the video art. It was the idea that people were making short things to see that were being shown in art spaces downtown. And um, Vito Acconci influenced me a lot because he was always making these little super eight movies I never wanted to work in Super 8 because he he would always lose frames and have to mm. put them together with uh, tweezers, wow. which seems like, oh, my God, that's just too much work. And I wasn't ever that, like, impeccable. That I would I knew I'd be losing frames all the time. But at the same time, there were a couple of things that um, I saw that were more f- from the film world, which were which was there was a retrospective of Jean-Luc Godard films, you know, which really interested me because – it wasn't just straight line narrative because when I was in Michigan, there were art films, but you know, you'd see Bergman films and I, I wasn't really drawn to Bergman films Mm -hmm. at all, but Godard. Yes. And in the art world, let's say the art world is everything below 14th street in New York. There were, you could see films by Fassbender or, you know, uh, just the great uh, Mm -hmm. Cassavetes. I wrote about some of them. The women were really influential because I wrote a lot about Joan Jonas and Yvonne Rayner and Simone Forti and Trisha Brown, a lot of the dancers, um, Carolee Schneemann, women who were using their bodies 
to make art, performance art. And that led to, of course, later films that I, to Born in Flames. I mean, I, I did a film called Regrouping before that, which I put in a closet for a really long time. Hmm. But, but what happened was that, um, being, being close to Richard Serra, for example, I met him because of Joan Jonas. I worked for Richard Serra for a while and he gave me a soundtrack for a movie called Steel Mill, which was, he, he, shot in a German steel mill and he basically gave me the soundtrack to edit, just like sound, edit this. Mm -hmm. So editing became a form of writing. And I loved the idea of creating a soundtrack for this film. It wasn't a full length film. I think it was maybe 40 minutes long. So the idea of films being shown within gallery settings was for me just another form of art. It wasn't the idea of coming out of a film school where you're seeing films as being shown within film contexts. And so for me, it was just part of a very lively world where everyone kind of knew everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because I had some, because I was writing for art, um, art forum, I had some, I had a little bit of stature, I would say mm-hmm. that I wasn't just like a girl, which I would have been had I, had I not been, but what happened from there was that I started to see how how the women who are used, doing performance art or body art or perform, you know, they were not treated as well mm. or their art wasn't valued as much as some of the male artists started to really be, their art like blew up and they were seen as heroic and paid a lot of money. The women were not treated in the same way. And the second wave of feminism came in, and that's what completely changed my mind about what I should be doing and who I was. Right. Just even as a as a person that, so I, I kind of put all art world behind me as I made Born in Flames, and I just thought, no, I can't, I I I have to, I have to reject this all. And then, feminism itself seemed to be monolithic, you know, a single middle class white man's voice. I thought I need to make a film which includes the voices of black women and whose vo- I can't write their voices, but I didn't want to make a documentary. It, it, I wanted to include, I wanted it to be multi-layered and I had to find the women with whom I would work. And that, that's a film that took five years. So it was just an interesting shift from the art world to this other world. And yet I didn't necessarily consider a film that would come from it, a film that I still saw of it, saw it somewhat as an art film. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I wasn't really sure where it would be shown because it was also to, I wanted a totally different kind of audience because there were so many black women in it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also it was a very long process, right? It, was, it took you like five years or so to, to, complete it is that right yes yes because i I needed it to emerge i needed the story to emerge once i knew what the story was i needed to find it because the first two years were just exploring ideas almost in a group setting like what would the ideas of violence be what would all that be Mm -hmm. and until um then certain elements came in that allowed me to create a story for example the brother of the guy who plays the the boss of the socialist news leaders mm-hmm. came back with footage from the, from 
from Africa where he had women really shooting shooting guns in a real they were real mm -hmm. you know it was so I thought my god that's really interesting I can have this character Adelaide Norris go talk about um bringing guns into the United States and she gets killed and that'll be the storyline and so I could start to construct a narrative line and from that I could start to create a like I didn't understand anything about three-act structures back then. Now I understand the film has a three-act structure. I could create a three-act structure from material I had and then add to it and then use montages and montages to pull it together. Then at the very end, get newscasters, right, retired newscasters <laughs> or mostly or, or women who want, women who wanted to be a newscaster with that voice and write scripts for them to tie the film together. So all the elements I had, I could put together. But the, the reason to it took five years was not only just developing what the narrative would be, it was also because I didn't have the money. Sure. You know, I would edit, I would edit every day, but I, I would, could only shoot when I had about $200. And then I would go out and shoot. <laughs> so yeah. It was, that actually worked out though because I would have new material I could edit and then I kept making ellipses so it was editing on the editing machine yeah wow I mean obviously this was uh, it came out in 83 I believe which was um, also a very conservative era in the states and um, also I guess an era where feminism was getting even less of a, of a national platform um, and what were people's reactions to it then and how does it also compare to screenings today well, it's interesting because it was Reagan during that time. Yeah. And part of the re reason for the film was because it was a conservative era. We were pissed off. You know, we were pissed off about the issues that were reflected in the film. You know, I mean, the premise of the film is 10 years after a social democratic um, cultural revolution where women are treated as second class citizens. You know, so there were issues around um uh, equal pay. There were issues around rape, about around what do you do about rapists, about mm -hmm. you know all the same issues. But it was Reagan. Everyone was furious, and so that that conservative era is part of the reason why Born in Flames existed. You know, it wouldn't probably have been made during an Obama era, and to yeah. to track to track how Born in Flames did over the years is kind of interesting because it's a, a reflection against about the kind of governments, you know? So what happened was that it, it sort of did okay when it came out, it was within an art context and people, some people really didn't like it, you know, and it was, it was treated in a certain way. There was an article in the New York times that was furious about it saying, mm. cause I had gotten a couple of grants, uh, DA Penny Baker, for example, example, helped me get a, a, a grant and it was like a national grant and national endowment right. and the but the there was an article on the front page of the New York Times saying is this what our our funding goes for this kind of film furious furious and so what happened was that in 2016 the uh, anthology film archives restored the film and made it put it on 35 and it looked great it looked so much better than then it looked when it first came out and cleared up the sound it was just so much clearer mm -hmm. and it made it look more professional, but it coincided 
with Trump being elected. And it was a few years, I mean, it was around the time of Occupy Wall Street and all of this lunacy. But as it turns out, nothing has changed for women. And so much has slid back, you know, attacks against Roe v. Wade and the chipping away of, of, of not just abortion rights, but the ability to get, um, you know, just even, even uh, birth control. You know, those kinds of things, everything that the women are angry about in Born in Flames, women are angry about again, you know, and then even just the violence against men, the idea of um, a woman dying in a jail cell and it yeah. being called yeah. suicide and the World Trade Center, just the fury re over again, the idea of anger, anger again. And then the other thing that happened over the course of the years is People were kind of freaked out when it first came out at the women who were in Born in Flames. They were like, they, who are these women? They're not conventionally pretty. You know, they're just, they're, they look as if they may be across some kind of gender spectrum, but we did not have words for that. And there was no word for intersectionality that, that was coined in 1992. But now there has been true evolution in, in the language. So I think even young men are able to see, watch Born in Flames in a different way and to empathize and to identify with some of those characters in a way they were not able to like in 1983. So the idea of that is that nothing has changed. How do we change? How do we change anything? So I think that that. It's a rallying cry, yeah. A rallying cry. And that's what it was meant to do. It's meant to be agitprop, you know, so that when you walk out at the end of it, it's only meant to say, do something. Because what I wanted it to be was a big question mark. Like when the when the uh, the towers at the top of the World Trade Center go up, and not a single person is harmed in all of, of the movie, it's really meant to ask, well, what happens at the end? It was actually modeled on, on the Battle of Algiers, you know, when all the terrorists, so-called freedom fighters, not terrorists, freedom fighters are killed. That whole new whole new wave takes their place. So in a way, I, was, I wanted to ask, well, what happens at the end? Do more freedom fighters take their place? I just wanted people to come out asking questions mm -hmm. or wanting to act in some way. And I think people now want to act. Okay, I also wanted to talk about uh, your other film uh, that I've seen, uh, your third film, Working Girls, um, which is basically capturing a day in the life of a, of a sex worker. And it also won uh, the Best Feature Award at Sundance in 1986, if I'm not mistaken. Um, what was that like to win that award? And also, what was the festival like in these early days? Well, you know, it, it was... When you win a when you win an award, you you sort of blank out and don't remember the moment. <laughs> um, so it was the festival was actually not even called the Sundance Film right. Festival then. Yeah. It was called something else, and it was very intimate. It was just a lot of people who were. It wasn't as um, it wasn't Hollywoodized. Yeah, you know, there weren't yeah. a lot of agents running around. You could actually go and see every other film. It was, you know, the Cone brothers were there. I mean, people were there. The real filmmakers were there. And you could run into them on the streets. I met Roger Ebert, you know, who I, he liked mm. it. 
but it was not the big event that it's turned into yeah. now where it, it was, it was, yeah, it was like the, called the Robert Redford film festival or mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. like that. It was more indie then. So it was yeah. very yeah. indie, very, very, very indie. And, you know, I know it's strange, but because it actually premiered at the Cannes film festival at the, mm-hmm. at, at the, um, uh, director's fortnight mm-hmm. along with it, along with, um, Spike Lee's She's oh, Got wow. It. His so, debut, right? And yeah. I knew Spike. Well, yeah, I knew Spike. Well, Spike had done a barbershop, uh, barbershop movie, and I knew Spike because he worked for, he worked for, um, first run features. Uh, he used to be one films there. So I just, you know, we were friends to that. And it, it was just, that was really fascinating because I really didn't understand what Kim was going to be like. That was a much more distressing. Movie yeah. Because. It was every time you go one way, you see other people dressed really well going the other way and you wonder where they're <laughs> going. I didn't have, I don't, I've never been somebody who knows how to dress. So somebody had to lend me clothes to even go up, mm-hmm. um, for my screening. And that was, that was overwhelming. That was truly, truly overwhelming. But, um, Harvey Weinstein bought it there mm. and, um, he presented it, <clears throat> he presented it at, uh, he presented it at the Sun, we'll call it Sundance Film Festival. But at that point, people, you know, in the aftermath of everything, people asked me, did I know about him, um, and women? And I did yeah. not. Yeah. You know, because, you know, he took it on and my only fight with him about it was that he wanted to market it as an erotic, erotic mm. film. And I was saying, but it's yeah. not. This is the, you know, anybody who comes into the film wearing a raincoat is going to be bitterly disappointed. <laughs> this right. film is about labor. It's not a, an erotic film at all. But it was, and then there were scenes I wanted to, I wanted to add to. He, it, he had that reputation of cutting films shorter and I wanted to make it longer. And he said, you know, fine, you can do it with, you know, your advance. And he, he, I just remember his brother coming to, we had a we had a little office uh, my partners and I um Margie and Andy and Uline had wanted it and I think Miramax just ordered offered more and they came with like twenty thousand dollars in a briefcase wow. a, and that's what we used basically to a few more scenes and just to stretch it out and give it a little bit more breathing space but during that whole period of time I just saw him throwing chairs at people and desks that's all you know mm-hmm. and oh my god yeah. You know, he, he ended up marrying the woman in his office, which wasn't the office he had. That he had a little office on the west side. He ended up marrying Eve, who was this beautiful woman, in his office that was his first mm-hmm. wife, which is all I ever saw in that period of time. So it's just a yeah, very just you know the distressing thing. I mean, there was there were other. Harvey stories from later, but yeah, yeah, I was going to ask you later about about that, but um, yeah, that's 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 not quite surreal. Um, and back to your to the actual film, Working Girls. Um, why did you decide to tackle the the topic of, of sex work in that time? Well, since going to come out with it anyway, um, I during the period of time when I was making Born in Flames, I found out that some of my friends. We're working at this one one particular brothel in the in the uh, I would say in the twenties on the east side um, of New York, mm-hmm. and it was 
they treated it like a little cult or club or as a kind of private secret. They were only working a few hours a week. And it was just like my best friend and a few friends and a few no very notable women um, I knew from the Lower East Side. And so, you know, how did I keep Born in Flames going all that time? Like, how did I keep financing it? So I decided I would do it, too. Mm -hmm. I just thought, but I would go in there with a tape recorder <laughs> and I would do it just as long as I needed to do it in order to um, get a movie. But but this comes out of a downtown where sex work was down there. Yeah. You know, we I had friends like Cookie Mueller who were strippers, and it was just a natural thing to go watch Cookie Strip. It was just fun. So we would go watch Cookie Strip. It was in the, a local strip club downtown where she stripped in her own. She didn't dress up particularly. She wore her 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 own underwear, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was fun. So it wasn't like a thing. It wasn't like a big transition. So I did it for a few months. And be, I would only have done it if my, because my friends did it. And it was my experience. And it was a lot because if I had had to have any other kind of job, I wouldn't have been able to make Born in Flames or keep it going for all those five years. You know, I had other ways of earning some money, which were random. You know, I know that uh, somebody... You know, some other women worked in uh, coffee shops, but that was like 40 hours a week. And that was just, how would I, how would I work? And I also had a, an editing machine, which I rented up 24 hours a day. And very often NYU work, uh, students would, would rent, um, would rent out the night, mm -hmm. like the nighttime. But it, I only rented it out for 25 hours, $25 an hour. I wasn't profiting off of it. I was just covering the cost. Right. And each, each shoot cost, $200. So I was just keeping, it was like, I was doing it for my child. Born in Flames is my child. And I was getting a few grants, but a $3,000 grant doesn't go that far sure. when you're buying film stock and you're developing it and all of that. So I just thought, okay, I'll make this a mission because I thought I really loved the idea of labor. And in the film, a montage in Born in Flames, you can actually see I love that montage. a couple yeah. of shots from yeah. <laughs> that was me. That was me and my best friend, the one who turned me on to the brothel. We were deciding who's going to be the one to put the condom on and who's going to be the one to <laughs> shoot it. So I said to her, "Well, you have the manicure, so you're going to put the condom on, and I'm going to shoot it." So I won that battle. But yeah, it it came out of that. And then I thought, well, I'll build a I'll build a set of the brothel in my loft, and we'll do it then. But you know, I I I quit after a few months, so I it took a long time for me to actually talk about it because I feel like I was, I was being a kind of anthropologist that didn't deserve the stress mm -hmm. of being a sex worker. And, you know, I also felt like I could get out. I had the liberty of quitting when I wanted to. And some of the women there could not, you know, some could like my friends could quit when they wanted to yeah. and just like, Oh, enough. It's just been enough. And I, I, some of the other women, they needed to do it. You know, some of the women who I portray to the end of the night just had to keep coming back and doing it where I had the freedom to choose. No, I have had enough. The, the scent of place was just too much. Yeah. The woman who ran it was just too much. Um, the, the funny thing was that 
after I was almost done, I was going to be shown at, shown at Hunt College. And real madam left messages on my answer machine. She was going to shoot off my knees if I used her real name, which was Susan. I don't think Susan was her real name, but she thought I was going to show show where she kept her money. I have no idea where she kept oh, her money. Wow. Okay. But I had to go I had to go to Harvey and say, tell him this is what I did, this is what's gonna happen. And he just said, Okay, you change that with your own money. So I had to go in a very cheap way, I had to change her name. And then one of the working girls got to the act and she said, My name my name is Sean, you can't say what my name is. I'm like, Oh my God, you too? So I had to oh, change God. the name Sean. I had to dub Sean to Don. But I did it in the cheapest possible way. But I still have the, on my, I kept those tapes in case anything would happen. But I know she, oh, and the name Miles, I had to, I do from Michael to Miles. I just had to put all those names, change them because it was so based on a particular person. Mm-hmm. Although later on, people came and told me that it remind the madam reminded um, them of their madams. So it was clearly a portrait that reminded them of many madams who right. do that, you know. But recently I've been doing uh, a book. I, I've been a, editing a book of strippers' stories. I mean, real stories, like uh, literary stories mm-hmm. of strippers over the years from the 80s on now. And I actually want to do stories of, of strippers after the pandemic and how, what is intimacy at this point? Um, so I feel like now that I'm sort of be, have friends now in the sex world, I, you know, I want to talk about it because once you do it, you've crossed a line and you understand something about it that you would not understand if you never did it, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and it, I do have an allegiance with sex workers and it is something you learn something you you do cross the line and you know I did have I did have to stop I mean I had to stop suddenly um I was going to stop just because I was I was there's a certain point where you just feel like oh I've had enough it's just too much but um I was you know I I was seeing honey at the time and she put one of the tapes in her walkman when she was she took these long walks across the Williamsburg bridge and she she heard one, and it was like, oh my god, <laughs> I have to stop. And <laughs> she didn't know, of course. Okay. Didn't know, you know. I, I just I just wasn't telling people, so that's why I stopped when I did. How um how do you feel like those two films, Born in Flames and Working Girls, um how do they relate to? You kind of answered it, Bill. So um ask um relate to second wave feminism, and also do you know if uh. Feminists like Gloria Steinem um, watched it, and Born in Flames kind of came out of second wave feminism. It was yeah. part of what created my my own feminist reaction, and also uh, a reaction against, on some level, second wave reaction or my modification of feminism. Because what happened was that there were so many women during that time, black women, who didn't like the word feminist you know, who's the womanist. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to have women create their own voices, black women especially, mm-hmm. because they they wanted the same things. And I wanted to explore, well, what would they want that would be parallel to what 
other women want, but not be put in one monolithic group. And what I felt about, you know, my, my, my feeling about Gloria Steinem has been very complex. You know, back then it was, as I felt Ms. Magazine, the women of Ms. Magazine didn't feel like me. I felt they were much more, they were dressed much more, oh, conservatively. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt they were trying to get into regular, like politics. We felt like that was too slow and, in my opinion, conservative for what rebellion we needed to have. And that felt, you know, even though there were, we worked with Flo Kennedy, who worked with Gloria Steinem, that it felt like we needed something more electrifying, more break mm-hmm. up the system. Mm-hmm. And um, so at that point, it was a reaction against something like Ms. Magazine, because I know they had, there seemed to be always one issue within feminism where it would be, well, we can't have any lesbians speaking up because that'll make all feminists seem to be lesbians. Or later on, it was, we're against pornography. And mm-hmm. and in terms of working girls, it was, wait a second, we're not, we're pro-pornography feminists, but we want to control the means of production. So it's it's not, it's not women being, you know, made into hamburger meat, mm. <laughs> you know, so it was really give us choices. So the whole, my whole notion about feminism was we was pro-choice, choice to be anything we want to be. The second wave of feminism was, was totally radicalizing and energizing, but the idea of working with black women in Born in Flames was really about, okay, what is your voice? Can we have parallel voices all working together, mm-hmm. but not as one unit? And my favorite thing that Flo Kennedy says is, in Born in Flames, is who would you rather see come through the door, one lion or 500 mice? 500 mice can do a lot of damage and destruction. So I right. see that as a metaphor for what Born in Flames is about and what mm-hmm. I was trying to do, standing a little apart from, from what second wave feminism would want to do as a unity. Feminism was radicalizing, but I think in, in Born in Flames and in Working Girls, I was trying to take a different take toward them by yeah. presenting a very powerful notion of freedom of choice and also by the idea that that it didn't have to be a monolithic notion and that, you know, in, in Born in Flames, that it, it wasn't all middle class white. And now, when did you uh, move to LA, and how did that come about? Well, well, it turns out, and I know this is, sounds really crazy, and it reveals a little bit too much about me, but it was after I did um, a film that destroyed me. Hmm. It was it was called Love Crimes, and you know, I oh, that was in New York. Okay. Yeah, I I did mm-hmm. I did Love Crimes. And I shouldn't have done it, but I didn't know I should have done it. And it was uh, a film that Harvey Weinstein was involved in. And he wanted Sean Young and nobody but Sean Young to do it. And I was an innocent, I think, coming into it because my experience with film had always been that if you want something long enough, it turned out okay. Because I had always controlled the means of production. Mm-hmm. So when the script came along, it was actually written by Al Moyle, who did the, you know, of his work, right? Times Square. Yeah, Times Square. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Alan was a friend of mine. He wrote this interestingly perverse script, 
which I thought was really interesting. And I worked with Alan for a long time on it, and it was just edgy and bizarre. So when I said yes to it and went into it, and Harvey basically had me meet Sean and said she's the one, I said, okay. But And then another foreign company came into it, but Harvey wouldn't move off the idea of Sean. Hmm. It was the worst experience of my life for so many reasons, and the script ended up not being the script. It was, I had notes from both of the companies, and it was changing every day. So every day I was thinking, the script is not the script. It keeps changing, and it was so far away from the script that I wanted to do, and I really didn't know I could walk off, that I could quit, mm-hmm. and that I had options. And by the time it was done, uh, other other shots were added by Kit Carson flashbacks I didn't put in and there were it was just a nightmare such a nightmare and at the end Harvey was basically he had told me that if take my name off of it he would destroy my career and it was even worse than that I'm not even saying how much worse than that it was but Mm. it was we did all the editing in Los Angeles because the other company was was located here and every day it got worse it just got worse and worse and I was not allowed to take my name off of it even though I saw it get worse and worse and it was so not what I every day was horrible because I would get notes script notes of different pages under my door and I didn't know what to do for this company or that company now I don't remember whole decades of my life but I remember every day of that film and then Oh, only later did I realize that Sean was a Me Too person. Yeah. I didn't know that. I really didn't know that. And um, I was interviewed for that Times. Jody Cantor called me like a, few, a couple a year before her piece came out. And all I could say was, no, you know, I didn't know about Harvey and women because he never came on to me. I was the wrong type. I was too old. I was too this. I was too that. I was too Jewish. I was too hmm. unattractive or whatever. Um and I even wrote a piece for women in Hollywood when they, someone started to imply that Meryl Streep and Judy Dench knew is that there's no reason Harvey would have, it's no reason they would have known they were royalty. Mm-hmm. You know, he needed them more than they needed him. Right. They had other places to go. And I just, then I wrote a little bit about that, but I still didn't, you know, I still didn't know about Sean until she finally came out. Because she and I did not get along at all. She was, I had been, I had been, you know, I don't want to go into it too much because I don't know that it's her fault either. Mm-hmm. But I had been warned off in so many ways. And I suppose I just didn't have counselors who would have told me, walk off. It'll be less worse for you if you walk off. Did you have like an, an agent at the, at the time or did you, were you? No, I had, I had no agent. Okay. No, I had mm-hmm. no agent. I just had a lawyer and um, just an, a lawyer, but that's it. And so I was out for a long time. And then afterwards, I suppose I just stayed because I was renting out my loft. And there seemed to be possibilities, but you don't know you're in movie jail until you're in movie jail. Mm-hmm. And then you end up being in movie jail. And I blame myself, of course, because what happens is that you don't know that you're being considered difficult. And then I did one more thing where it was taken away from me. And the person said, 
well, it's because you're difficult that you, you know, and I thought, well, how could I have gotten that reputation? Because I haven't, I've been not difficult the whole time mm-hmm. when I should have absolutely been difficult. And then I think I probably had um, PSTD mm-hmm. <laughs> for a really long time. And I was kind of frozen. Things that were offered to me were, um, were similar to Born in Flames. And they were about, you know, they were, they were just horrible. Mm. And I just thought they would just make the prison keep going because it, it, they were just the same kind of, it was, it was, they were not a value of any sort. You know, it was as if in prison, you're only allowed to do prison work, you know? And so by saying no, I may have prolonged the prison to a point where, you know, and then I just started to write. I just thought I have to learn how to write because I never went to film school and I would have needed to know how to write my way out of trouble. Hmm. You know, it, not that in love crimes it would have helped because nobody would have listened. Um, because by the time it was underway, I had more severe problems than that. But that's why I ended up out here and it's an ephemera. And then New York had started to change by that time. Right. I mean, you mentioned uh, Weinstein, of course, and and what your relationship with him. Um, were you uh, were you surprised when when you know the news broke and and Me Too happened? No, because I'd started to hear from other people about him um, over the years. So, but I didn't I didn't see it. But yeah. I I was surprised that it hit so high. I was shocked actually that. He, I was shocked to hear that major actresses, actors rather, but to specify actresses, had been up. He'd been, he'd been, he'd attacked royalty. Gwyneth Paltrow, my God. I mean, how could he? Mm-hmm. That was just, he, he was crazy. I mean, how could he do that? You know, um, I'd, I'd heard, the only th- thing I had heard you know, over the years was I had been talking to, you know, an, uh, an actress who then became very, very, very well known, but like around 2002 or something about how Meeting and Harvey came onto her and she, she off and he, he said he'd never work with her. And then she became very well known. She's an English actress and she ha- is very well known now, but I just, all she said was came onto her. Mm-hmm. She didn't specify. So, but over the years, I'd heard stuff, but she wasn't known then. She was just, you know, she had just done a couple of films. But the idea of what he did to such a degree, you know, that the women who came out so strongly at the beginning, the real, the real, oh, my God, the, they were extraordinary in coming forward. You know, Ash Judd and a few of the other women who really broke things that way. Yeah. I, I was blown away. Because I just knew him as such a bully, you know, it was, it was, it was unbelievable to me. Yes, I was, I was shocked at that mm-hmm. because well, when I knew him during the time, but I didn't know him past around 1990. And then I did know him a bit just, but only secondarily because um, I wrote a script about Bob Marley that Miramax was going to, uh, the Weinstein brothers rather, was going to pick up, but I only saw him one time during that because it was a like a money job, and I only saw him 
in passing somewhere. Still felt what he did to me was minor compared to what he did to them. Mm. You know, like Annabella Shiora, my God, I mean, he destroyed her. He destroyed her. And I thought, okay, he just, I should have been a stronger person to have not let get to me. I mean, he, he did make it extremely difficult and I should have been more inventive. You know, I should have probably written something that I could have done for $200,000, found a way to do it. Um, but the film I really have been passionate to do is a period piece set in the fifties. Yeah. <laughs> why, yeah. Why did I do that? I need some money for that. You know, it's my fault for not having thought of like a very low budget film. So it's, um, you know, there's that thing that gets inside you where you blame yourself and you wonder why people think you're difficult. And then it all came together. And then I realized that Sean was a Me Too uh, survivor. And it's like, oh, my God, it all makes sense. But I still thought, OK, some of these other women were were destroyed to a point where I am not, you know, I'm a I'm a B level, D level, F level, you know, person on that list. You know, I have what the in the wake of his destruction, he has left women who have really been the level of the of the abuse and destruction is just so great. There was nothing more dangerous than that. And I would I would see him having temper tantrums and throwing desks. I just think this man is such a bully and that is wrong. But it's it seemed look, my father threw desks. So I mm. thought was within the realm of men who had no self-control. And in terms of, um, of women directors, um, I feel like there is more of a platform for that uh, more than ever, uh, which isn't necessarily saying much, but um, if, are you like in touch with these directors? Do you, um, do you feel like there's kind of support between the, the generations, let's say, um, in LA or in general? Well, what, what I feel very, very excited about is not so much intergenerational support. Well, I wouldn't know that because I'm an outlier. I'm an independent filmer, filmmaker who hasn't made a film that I respect for many years. So, hmm. But I feel so happy about the fact that there are women like Leslie Gladder, you know, who have been a major in television, who are sharing their knowledge with women in their, let's say, 30s and 40s who want to be in television. You know, that's really important. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's key because there are so many women now who, you know, in Film Tall, let's say, or in um, Alliance of Women Directors who are sharing information. And they're, they're trying to um, get skills and they're trying to find work in that I would say the industry and the women who have succeeded in that industry are very, very open about sharing what they know and trying to help women succeed in, in that way. So, but the one thing that I feel is that there, it, there was a movement 50, 50 by 2020, which the pandemic is going to just not allow mm. um, in the film industry. It'll be maybe 50, 50 by 2022 or 2023 because until there's a vaccine, things aren't really going to get going. But this younger generation of, let's say, that 40-something-year-old women, they're massive. They're doing work. But I, my feeling is I don't know why people are discounting the independent work that people is do, are doing because there's such creativity in work around the world and global work. But what women have been doing is globally coming to the world and showing 
their experiences that are particular to them. But what we need are better distribution systems because where do they get to show their work? Right. Because I think that Netflix and um, Amazon Prime, they're, they're only going to buy what they think people will like. And there's always a, already a glut of films there. And they'll only advertise the ones that they think will make the most money, which comes to the very top of the list, which is you should watch this next. You know? Yeah. And yeah. So a lot of, and I just recently was, um, was, uh, film fatal. People were talking about the low scores their films were getting on, um, international movie database because people got it on and just trashed the movies. Yeah, totally. And I was kind of laughing because, well, Born in Flames is trashed always by men who just call it horrible. You know, so I was laughing and going, <laughs> maybe there should be a way not to make international movie database mean anything because it doesn't really. You know, there should be other distribution systems to allow people to find the movies that they really want to see. Yeah. That the, we have to create those so that women around the world can see the, the films that really will, will, uh, entertain, intrigue, teach, all those things. Because when I'm, I went to the Seoul Film Festival in, you know, in South Korea with the restored Born in Flames, and I saw some films there by Asian filmmakers that I know I will never see in any distribution system. Right. And only because I was there did I see them. And some of them were so masterful and fascinating. They were short films, which is another count against them at, yeah. in terms of distribution. But why can is there no distribution for them? You know, that, so I feel that there have to be alternate distribution systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and just finishing up here, uh, we've talked for so long. I'm sorry about this for keeping you for so long. Um, but, um, you were mentioning your, your, uh, long-term film project. Are there any other projects you're currently working on or thinking about, um, yes, just out of interest? Absolutely. Yeah. The, the long-term one, just to be more specific is about, because I know you're going to cut this all down to like mm. how much the ideal is, <laughs> but it, it, the, the film I'm working on now is about a woman in the, in the fifties who runs a movie theater called the Rialto. And she is a loner who has been doing this for a long time. She, she's, she shows foreign films and this is her great passion. And she gets in trouble with the Catholic church for showing films that are banned by the Legion of decency. I mean, films like miracle in Milan, you know, and, um, films with, um, you know, just films that, that we would think are art films, but mm -hmm. it's really a fact that the Legion of Decency banned them for being, um, uh, for whatever. And she falls in love with this, uh, kid coming back from the Korean War whose family is a very wealthy Republican family, but they fall in love. But what he discovers is that something else is going on in the theater. And what he discovers is that she is doing secret abortions in the basement. Um, and the only person close to her is uh, the gay projectionist who's followed her from city to city. But what the film is really about is when, when one liberty goes, they all go. Mm. And it's kind of a film noir, but it's very, very, um, I'm going to have to really stylize it because I have so little money to do it with. But it's so important to me, this question of choice, you know, yeah, the question yeah. of liberty and but I want it to feel like a little bit um, a cross between um, a War Kong Y movie and Cinema Paradiso. Wow. But it's changed over the years. But um, I'm also doing um, a project about uh, Anna Mendieta and Carl Andre. Do you know about them? I do not. I don't think so. 
Okay, in 1985, there was an amazing um, artist named Ana Mendieta, who's Cuban, who went out the window of an artist who was uh, an artist who I knew. Um, he was a sculptor who did pieces on the floor. She went out his um, high rise oh yes, mysteriously. And uh, he went through two court trials and was let off because the judge couldn't decide without a reasonable doubt. Mm. But it's really about the art world of that time in the 1980s. But I'm trying to do that as a mini series. Um, mm. You know, and I'm I'm also developing a project. It's a kind of a love triangle be between. This is just like new, but so like a love triangle between um, Simone de Beauvoir. Nelson Algren, who is this Chicago writer she fell in love with, who was very seminal in helping her write The Second Sex. Mm -hmm. And she then betrayed him when she wrote The Mandarins. But what he didn't know at the beginning was because he had his heart on his sleeve, was that she was completely committed to Jean-Paul Sartre. Mm -hmm. So it's but it's not going to be a big sweeping bio thing, you know, or anything. So it's. These, and you know what's so weird about it, though, is they're all period pieces. Why can't I write something that's like a $100,000 thing that is set now? I Maybe just set them in one room or something. I know. That would be know. too claustrophobic. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I'm trying to limit them so that they're not super expensive. But, yeah. It, they all sound super interesting, though. I'd, yeah, well, definitely. I, I guess what I'm interested in is periods of time and the people – Interesting women who are torn, edgy women who are torn or destroyed by their circumstances. I just feel for some reason, I think the choices I've made in my life in, ter in terms of just rejecting the idea of suburban life or the idea of, of, you know, being able to choose how one works, how one spends one's day, how, you know, even the idea of how one is able to use one's body is just always to me paramount and I think every woman has to have that choice but then I see too the endemic racism the endemic sexism that is not just in America America but around the world and the frustration I feel it just it just that's what keeps me wanting to work and I know some people think oh my god I only did a few films in the 80s and I'm completely over, but I feel yeah. just as passionate about Rialto now as I did about Born in Flames then. I just have to find, I just have to find a way to do it. Yeah, yeah, I really hope you do. And my last question would be um, the one I ask all my guests. Um, how do you go about making your decisions? Like, do you have certain tactics when it comes to making like big life decisions? Um, oh God, that's an interesting question. No, I think I drift into things, unfortunately, you know, and then I wonder how I got there. <laughs> um, making, making work is the most important thing. So what happens is that I think I let, because it takes me a long time to make something, I think I am focused on that one thing. And then I just kept on it. And even though I did other things and I've written other things and I work as a script consultant and I am diverted and sometimes I've been offered other things, but I keep thinking, no, Rialto is more interesting to me. I stay on it. Why am I on it? I somehow drift through time just focused on that. So drift is a lot. It's, it somehow 
keep me focused and the rest of it is just what I do while I try to do that. Mm -hmm. So other life decisions just seem to happen while I try to do that. So work is the defining element and it's kept other things away. And I think that at a point where I probably should have taken teaching jobs, I think that, oh my God, what if Rialto happens and the teaching jobs there can't do that? Which is really silly because when I talk to my friends like Betty Gordon, they're able to teach and they're able to do their work at the same time and they end up actually making more films that way. I never think like that. I don't I don't think I think logically. <laughs> I think I think I have let intuition drive me and I don't know that intuition is always right. But I don't know what big life decisions are. I do know certain things that I knew that early on that I was a terrible mother. So I decided that I couldn't have children because I knew that there were certain days when I just wanted to um, do the day over mm -hmm. and or that I knew that I just wanted to. Um, I knew that if you had a kid, it was 24 seven. And I, I, I like kids for about eight hours max. So I have <laughs> yeah. godchildren and I'm a good aunt, but I'm just knew I wouldn't be a good mother. So that was a life decision I didn't have to make. You know, I sometimes wonder about living in New York, but when I went back to see where I, my old loft was, and I see Disneyland that grew up around it, I realized that yeah. it would be a horrible place to live. So while I have nostalgic feelings about having lived there, I know that that exact place where I could have kept my loft because it's an AIR loft, I know that that wouldn't have been the right place to live. So I don't know yeah. how I do those things. You know, I knew I needed to be in New York, and then I ended up in L.A., and I sometimes think it's the biggest mistake I ever made. And I wonder if I stayed in New York where I would be, probably in that loft. Hmm. And I see that around the corner is like there's a Sephora. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> and, you know, it's just like, oh, my God, would I have wanted to be there? Maybe. Maybe I would have gotten used to the idea slowly, you know, and the places I do love, like the Lower East Side, were like a 15-minute walk. Certain things happened to me that that created a course for me that weren't really my decision, but then became my decision. Like having made love crimes was something that happened to me and then created a course for me that I then had to deal with, but I don't know that I dealt with it in the in a way that was in the in the words of our current current words in that was empowering. Mm-hmm. I dealt with it in a reactive way by just not knowing how to deal with it. So I stayed in L.A. because it felt like a place I should be to try to find ways to get around it mm -hmm. instead of going back to New York and realizing that there would be this would be a terrible place for me because of the kind of work I, that because of who I was and the fact that I was truly an independent filmmaker and that there was no way that I could actually ever fit within a quote-unquote Hollywood system. You know, even the way I'm going to make Rialto, I do have the financing for Rialto now, but and we are going out to an actress. But, Great. Yeah, but the problem is that there's no if you the pandemic is happening. So, you know, and what happens if, if you're in my position that this is instructive to anybody is you do get managers or you do get agents, but because of things like love crimes it's not easy for them to get you anything. And then uh, in reading things, 
the films that were offered were like erotic thrillers that were just like, no, because they were always very punishing to women. And I felt like, oh, that's not what I want to be doing. Right. I want to be do, I want to be doing work that's, that's, that needs to be in the world. And suddenly I started to see the world as just cluttered with stuff that didn't need to be there. You know, just what is something, you know, I decided at one point to only make films that were necessary or I felt like I could stand behind and talk about. And I realized that the reasons I wanted to make film were to make a film that was a kind of avatar for me. Okay. Okay. Great. Cool. Um, so thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you again it's and been, have a nice day. And well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Okay. Good. All right. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Thanks to Chris Yoe Tokunaga for the music and Julie Saragosa for the sound engineering. You can find The Ben on SoundCloud, Facebook, and Instagram, and you can reach me at thebenpod at gmail.com. Please subscribe and rate The Ben on iTunes because it really helps with the podcast's visibility. Thanks!